This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 8th, 2020. I'm Beth Bennett with another COVID-19 update. Today I'm going to go into some depth with an overview of the two mRNA vaccines that we've been hearing about for the past few weeks. I'm surprised at how much resistance there is in the U.S. at the prospect of being vaccinated. So I want to give some background as to what a vaccine does, how the approval works, and how exactly these vaccines work. First, let's review just what your immune system does when you're exposed to a bug for the first time and how that translates to immunity acquired by vaccination. Here's Ari Daniel from NOVA to explain. Immunity is a natural defense system of the human body. Imagine millions of immune cells, like white blood cells, all on the lookout for specific germs. If they spot something dangerous, like flu, they prepare to fight. When that flu bug enters your body, the white blood cells move in on it. The immune cells arm themselves and then replicate, creating an army of clones. Then they launch powerful germ-killing agents called antibodies, and they tag the germs for disposal. Once the germ is removed, the immune army can disband. But they leave behind memory cells. Their job is to remember the invader and to sound the alarm if it ever appears again. The first time around, it can take at least a week to mount the defense. But next time, the system is prepared. The whole process takes barely a day. It's so fast, we may never have time to even feel sick. A vaccine pre-arms the immune system by sending in a weakened or dead version of the germ, just enough to be recognized. The immune cells mount the defense, and again, you may feel the effect. But because the threat is low, the immune cells quickly disband. However, the all-important memory cells have been created. The immune system's now prepared for the real germ, but without causing full-scale disease. But you don't even need a weakened or dead version of the germ, as Ari said. The new mRNA vaccines that you've been hearing about use a novel approach, but one that has been successfully vetted during the past decade in animals and small human trials. You'll hear more about these shortly. So what is mRNA? As you may know, your genes, which are made of something called DNA, reside in your chromosomes in the nucleus of a cell. A gene is a recipe for making a protein. Proteins are made outside the nucleus from a copy of the recipe. This copy is mRNA. If you get an mRNA delivered into your cells, they will start making the protein encoded by that instruction.
the first round of mRNA vaccines all rely on introducing a recipe for the so-called spike protein as the antigen. The antigen is the viral protein that evokes the immune response. Is this a good long-term plan? Here's Dr. Anthony Fauci weighing in. Uh, the answer is no, but this target is so clearly important in the binding of the virus to its cellular receptor, which is the ACE2 receptor, that you would have to have the predominant effort being using the spike protein receptor binding domain as the target of the neutralizing antibody. But you're absolutely right. You never want to put all your eggs in one basket, and that's the reason why the next generation of vaccines certainly will include something above and beyond the receptor binding domain of the spike protein. But you would really have to go with that first and predominantly from everything we know in animal studies and even in, in, in vitro physiology. So when will vaccines be available, and what can we expect? Cautiously optimistic that we will have a safe and effective vaccine, and then we'll be able to start distributing doses reasonably soon thereafter in a graded fashion to individuals with the highest priority, such as healthcare workers and people on the front lines. What that's going to mean, apropos of your question, is that there are two factors that are going to determine uh, the degree to which public health measures are going to be playing an important part in protecting our country and the people in our country. First of all, how effective would the vaccine be? And as importantly, how many individuals are going to opt to take the vaccine? Because you know there is a considerable degree of reticence, uh, skepticism about the vaccine that we need to overcome by transparency and messaging and reaching out to the community. But if we get a reasonably effective, 75% effective vaccine and a substantial proportion of the population takes the vaccine, I think we're gonna be going in the right direction towards approaching some degree of normality as we head into 2021 in the second, third and fourth quarter. How do we know the vaccines are safe? Here's Professor Roger Seeholt from Loma Linda University to explain how the trials are conducted. So in the study, there was about 30,000 people. And just like the Pfizer-BioNTech study, there was racial diversity to the effect that there was around 11,000 people from communities of color. In addition to that, there was also 7,000 subjects that were 65 years and older, and there were 5,000 subjects that were less than the age of 65 that had comorbidities. And so what they did is they enrolled 30,000 subjects, and of course half of these got placebo and half of these got the 1-2 injection of the vaccine. And let's remind people again that this vaccine works in a very similar fashion 
as does the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in that it is a mRNA vaccine, which means that this mRNA, which is encapsulated in a lipid bilayer, is injected into the body. It merges with specific cells. And how do we get it to merge with those specific cells? How do we get that messenger RNA in the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and the Moderna vaccine in? Well, we used a lipid bilayer, or a micelle as we called it, to get those fragments or that messenger RNA into the cytoplasm. And then from there, it's fairly straightforward. The cell uses its own cell machinery, which is the ribosomes, to cause translation to occur, and you make the protein in question. The micelle, or lipid that he described, is a wrapper around the RNA which allows it to get into the cells. Once in a cell, as he said, that cell doesn't discriminate between your mRNA and that of the virus. The cell just makes the indicated protein. In this case, it's the spike protein of the virus. Once that viral protein moves out of your cell, then your immune system can see it and recognize it as a foreign protein and start to mount a defense against it. So let's get back to the results of the clinical trials. So in terms of safety, looking at both the Pfizer, BioNTech, and the Moderna vaccine candidates, the Data Monitoring Committee has said that they have not seen any serious safety concerns with the Pfizer-BioNTech candidate. And the Data Safety Monitoring Board for Moderna has also said that there was no significant safety concerns. Now, with Pfizer, they have said that they're going to be releasing more specific data on safety in the coming weeks. Looking over the side effects, they were mostly mild to moderate. They were short-lived, and they were the type of side effects that you would expect to see with any kind of vaccine, even a flu vaccine. So you can see the differences here very clearly. The similarities are also very clear. Both of these vaccines seem to prevent disease very effectively. However, both are still in question about whether or not they prevent infection. In both, you require two vaccine shots. In both of these vaccines, there seems to be a good randomization and also representation from communities of color. There also seems to be a lack of severe side effects that are concerning. But of course, because they've only been around for a few months, we don't have long-term safety data on either of these vaccines. And remember, we also don't know how long this type of an effect from the vaccine is going to last. That was Professor Roger Seeholt from Loma Linda University discussing the Moderna COVID-19 mRNA vaccine. Now, I'm not going to go into depth today about some of the other vaccines that use a different strategy, namely injecting a weakened or attenuated virus, but let's just hear a little about one of these vaccines developed by AstraZeneca. Here's Dr. Seeholt again talking about another issue 
that of a different trial design. They did the trial a little differently in terms of the fact that they waited for subjects to become symptomatic with COVID-19 symptoms before looking at the endpoint there or a midway point to see whether or not the vaccine was effective. Here in the AstraZeneca case, they were not doing it that way. No, in fact, they were doing swabbing and they were checking for infections. This is a huge deal. Because whereas with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine candidate and also the Moderna vaccine, all we can really say about those two, even now with the results that we have, is that it is definitely effective, if what they're saying is true, at preventing the symptoms of COVID-19, at preventing the disease, at preventing the things that cause people to go to the hospital. What we don't know right now about those two vaccines is whether or not the vaccine prevents infections. And that's important because infections leads to transmission and transmission leads to spread of the virus. Given that you have a relatively long history as far as mRNA vaccines go of working with them, what are the advantages and disadvantages of this type of vaccine? Well, I think that um there are a number of advantages, and we've seen that, that you can go very quickly from just mere identification of the particular, let's say in this case, pathogen, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, identification of what the key protein is, and then synthesize that mRNA immediately and do rapid testing preclinically for immunogenicity and then ultimately get it into clinical trials. So the advantage is the speed at which you can go from essentially not having anything and a sequence to actually generating a vaccine. The second thing that it has potentially is flexibility down the road if you needed to make changes to the sequence. For example, several years from now, perhaps there was a change in the coronavirus and started to drift a little bit as we see with you know, flu or something like that. You could rapidly modify it. It would be very easy to do. The disadvantage is that we don't have any approved ones yet. We're close to obviously EUAs on both the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, but we don't have a track record of 10, 20, 50 years of using this particular platform. So there are some unknowns about durability, certainly about long-term safety, uh, in theory anyway, and, and performance. Uh, and then the other disadvantage, of course, is cold chain relative to some of the other vaccines that we've used historically where these um, are much more uh, susceptible to um, uh, breakdown of the products, the lip lipid uh, nanoparticles that the mRNA is encapsulated in. And for the different companies, they have different stabilities. For example, Pfizer, you need to maintain it minus 80. Uh, Moderna, apparently, yeah, you can maintain it minus 20 for some period of time and then at four degrees for some time. But it's not like um, other vaccines, which you can keep at room temperature or without refrigeration or keep them put in areas where it may be warm. So that is a, a, a potential disadvantage of these platforms as well. Right, and I suspect that that will continue to evolve as people work more and more with the RNA vaccines. Um, but I did notice that with your work with mice, that in some models you use one dose and in some models you use two dose. Is that also something that you expect will change with these vaccines? Yeah, it may. So one of the other advantages to the mRNA vaccines, we didn't talk about the immunology of them, but basically the host 
the piece of person who's receiving the vaccine translates the proteins in your own cell as opposed to providing it exogenously. And that does two things. One is you make your own protein. So it's sort of um, uh, uh, one that you've made. And there's some advantages to that. So I, I, what I would say is that the mRNA vaccines have an advantage in that you can generate both arms of the immune response, a humoral immune response, which generates antibodies, which are very important, but also by the nature of the platform, they also generate very robust T cell responses. And the combination of the two can uh, generate significant efficacy. To address your original question about one dose or two doses, in the preclinical animal models, where we studied this in the context of a different mRNA vaccine for Zika virus using a very similar platform, we were able to show that one dose was sufficient um, uh, for protection. Uh, here, uh, the responses, um, they did get responses with one dose, but they were vastly improved with two doses. And so they felt that it might not be adequate to use just one dose. There are differences in terms of how the viruses actually infect animals or humans. And so that has it uh, probably affects the number of doses that you might need and whether you need truly systemic immunity or whether you need immunity in a particular organ. In this case, the lung is the dominant organ which they're trying to protect. I see, okay. And so then with the mRNA viruses that you've studied in mice, some of them are in um, viruses that aren't exactly household names in this country. Uh, and it might be because they're in a different family of viruses, but my final question relates to um, with some of these viruses, that cause disease in humans, uh, you find that an mRNA vaccine elicits uh, cross-reaction to other diseases. Is that something that's possible with the coronavirus vaccine? So I think you have to be careful what, I, what we meant by that. Um, what we actually observed was that the immune response to the particular protein of interest for two different flaviviruses, which are different viruses than coronaviruses, one was Zika, uh, which everybody, well, m many people are aware of Zika because of its epidemic that occurred a few years ago. And then the other is a much more rare virus called Powassan virus, which emerge is emerging in the United States, but is a much more smaller number of cases. We got specific immunity against both the viruses with each of the respective vaccines. We got cross immunity to other flaviviruses, not other viruses that were unrelated okay. and not to other antigens that may be present and not to um, not autoimmunity. We didn't see that. What we saw was that, for example, the Powassan vaccine was specific for Powassan, but also managed to protect against other very closely related flaviviruses that shared um, some of the similar uh, proteins with it. And in the same way, the Zika response also had some cross-reactivity to very closely related viruses, but not to distantly related viruses and not to unrelated viruses. I see. So in fact, that could be another advantage in that it looks like there's multiple strains of the coronavirus that are emerging as causing this disease. Correct. In other words, you, what that says to us is you generate a breath of a response, meaning you're not just generating one B cell and one T cell, you generate a very broad response of which many of them are directed against the only the virus that you're seeing, in this case, SARS-CoV-2, but other of them might be able to see other related viruses either that exist or as they emerge as variants. Right, gotcha. Okay, so one last question then relates to what you said earlier about the um, 
the protein that is targeted by this messenger RNA. Do you think that in the future it'll be necessary to look for other proteins besides the spike protein to mount an immune response? Yeah, so I think the spike has done well. You can see that by the efficacy that they've generated, at least in the preliminary unpublished data, 90, 95% efficacy we're talking about, and even Moderna's against disease potentially higher. That said, there are lots of other proteins within the SARS-CoV-2 genome, which could additionally be targeted. So not restricting you to spike, but perhaps adding one against another gene one of the open reading frames or accessory proteins that are known to modulate the immune response in a bad way, you might be able to then generate um, antibodies or T cells that would recognize those and then that those could actually enhance protection. But that remains to be seen. So I think it's an opportunity. And but the 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 proof would be comparing head to head the spike based vaccine with spike plus something else. Are we getting better protection that is worth it? that would uh, lead us to add this to, to, to the spike vaccine or not. And so I think that those studies are going to be done probably pretty soon after the first generations of viruses, uh, vaccines are out. So there's a possibility, but we need to actually see that they provide enhanced protection. Yeah, okay. So before I let you go, I just have to ask you this one last question. Are you going to be in line for that first round of vaccines? So uh, the answer is yes. I am. Uh, healthcare worker. My laboratory works on SARS-CoV-2. So uh, we will be among the first ones uh, because of actively working on the virus in my laboratory. And therefore, it's considered a high risk, uh, um, you know, uh, undertaking, in addition to being, you know, a physician um, here at Washington University. So I would imagine that I'll be one of the first. And absolutely, I am a big proponent in vaccines. We work on them. And I'm happy to take the first platforms that come out uh, as long as they've shown good records, which uh, the FDA is uh, evaluating now, both in efficacy and safety. That was Professor Michael Diamond from Washington University describing advantages and future progress with mRNA vaccines. He studied this type of vaccine with several other viral diseases for many years. Let's finish up by talking about what happens if the vaccine isn't taken by a substantial portion of the population. A lot of people are saying we should just rely on herd immunity. That is, the natural immunity to a disease that occurs when a sizable proportion of the population has had the disease. But if herd immunity to COVID requires that about 65% of the population has had it, that's a lot of the U.S. population. 65% of 350 million is over 227 million. And of course, that would have a huge impact on the medical system. Here's Dr. Fauci again to emphasize this point. The way, I mean, if you have a vaccine that's 78% effective, you can't make it any more than 78% effective. But what you can do is get more people vaccinated. So there's two parts of the equation. There's the efficacy of the vaccine itself, and then there's the number of people who take the vaccine. So what we need to do to really put a lot of the effort on the herd immunity that's vaccine-induced, we need to just get a lot more people vaccinated.
So there we have it. The mRNA vaccines are safe and effective, and we can build herd immunity by vaccinating a large portion of the population. We'll probably have other more traditional types of vaccines earlier in 2021, if those seem safer to people. I'll post links to further information on all these topics on the How on Earth site. Stay well. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer until the end of the month, and I produce this week's show. Sam Fuqua engineered. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Ludwig van Beethoven and Amadeus Mozart. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.